Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Nate, how are, you, how are your ribs doing? Coming along? Yeah. <laughs> Slightly better than last week. At least you're not in a wheelchair. Yeah, the problem is is that I keep sneezing, mm. and every time I sneeze, I feel like I just break everything up again and can't breathe for a solid two, three minutes, and then just cry and just <laughs> writhe and lay on the floor. I, I, I don't know why I find that funny. I, I mean, it is kind of funny if you're not me. Like, if you're anybody other than me, it's probably... Hilarious and terrifying to watch. You ever have those moments when you probably shouldn't find it funny? Yeah, because it is you, but you but you laugh anyways. Yeah, like 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 when I was a kid and I, I ran headfirst into a chain link fence oh. in the middle of the night. Oh man! And and it cut a diamond right into my forehead, and and I was laughing so hard at, at what that must have looked like from oh, a spectator's man. point of view. Yeah, but I digress. Oh yeah, that's that's wild. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So, uh let's see. Um they, 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 do you want to tell our listeners what happened? Your your transmission fell out on the road and uh Yeah, I mean, it, luckily it didn't actually hit the road. It just fell out of the bottom of the car and kind of just dangled a little bit. Didn't we go over this last week? Nobody wants to hear about my broken ribs. Let's do this. Everybody wants to hear about your broken ribs, Nate. It was a little rough. Let's just put it that way. It's been a little hard to breathe. I've played two shows since then for whatever it's worth. And Nate the Musician, check him out down at uh In a Valor. wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah, one of them was in a wheelchair. All right, let's see. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're going into Kirtland Temple, Doctrine and Covenants 109, which is the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. And then one week later, we've got Revelation, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 110, where Joseph Smith sees God and a couple of uh, special visitors visit him in the temple. Let's do it. Yeah. This is uh, not 109. Uh, Dr. Donald Perry down at BYU was my professor uh, Hebrew. And uh, he, he's the one that turned me on to Doctrine and Covenants 109. He said he would always read it in the temple when he was going to the temple looking for something to read just in those quiet moments because it was the dedicatory prayer of the first temple of this dispensation. So ever since he said that, that's it's been kind of my go-to section when I'm sitting in the temple. So we're going to look at it. Um, the, the Kirtland Temple was uh, dedicated March 27th, 1836, about a thousand people in attendance, which is a pretty good crowd. And uh, sometimes, you know, we've got general conference coming up and, and sitting through two hours can be a little bit hard, I think, for some people, for most people, for just about anybody, I guess, it depends on how tired you are. <laughs> It seems like a long meeting. I mean, sacrament seems a little bit long with one hour, two hours. It's very fulfilling. It's very good. It's hard when you got small kids trying Candy. to get them to focus. But the reason I bring it up is because this dedicatory service was seven hours long. That's a, that's a long service. That is the wildest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, seven-hour dedication. 
But they said that nobody was tired, which makes it even more unbelievable. Maybe that was the biggest miracle of of the Kirtland Temple dedication was that everybody felt rejuvenated. They they just hung on every word. And uh, describing the event, this is what Joseph Smith recalled, he, he wrote down or had written down, I'm not 100% sure which, um, George A. Smith arose and began to prophesy when a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, which filled the temple and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power, Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld the temple was filled with angels, which fact I declared to the congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple and were astonished at what was taking place. Uh, Some people recorded angels on the roof of the temple. Uh, The... The angels that they saw in there, some people uh, saw Christ himself. Uh, some people saw, I, I believe Peter was mentioned as being there, Abraham, uh, Adam was seen. There's a few uh, individuals that we would recognize from the scriptures. It was just a very powerful, momentous occasion. And this is really the calm before the storm. Because as, as we noted before, maybe maybe calm before the storms are a, a bad way of putting this, almost like the, the eye of a hurricane. Because you had the persecution, the immense persecution that was happening in Missouri, where the Lord was saying, hey, how come you're not worried more about building my temple than trying to preserve your lives? And they're getting through building this temple. And then when they dedicate it, all of a sudden it's just, peace, rest. Nobody's trying to kill them. No one is chasing them out. They're happy. They're seeing these manifestations. It's the eye of the hurricane. And Joseph Smith makes some predictions that they are going to see worse. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, that and, and what follows the Kirtland Temple, which we probably won't talk about today, is the fallout of the, the Kirtland Society, the bank failing, uh, and in the financial collapse that came with the apostasy of, of many members, uh, including several members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So it's, it's too bad it gets to that point, but at least today we get to enjoy this peaceful, magnificent manifestation of the Spirit, this calm and the restoration of the gospel that commemorates the first temple. To start off on the temple, they call it the House of the Lord, and... We see that all over the place. It's written on the building, house of the Lord, holiness to the Lord. And what is the purpose of a house? Why why do you go to someone's house? I mean, if you're going to go to your parents' house, usually it's because you want to go see your parents, right? You don't typically go to somebody's house without, without the intention of going and seeing them, visiting them. Uh, I, I guess at, at some occasions you can be tending the house for them in their absence or doing something nice for them. But but most of the time, the purpose of, of going to somebody's house is is so that you can go and see them, visit with them. And that being the purpose, verse 5 says um, that the, the purpose of the temple was that the Son of God might have a place to manifest himself to his people. So I think many times 
at least in my mind and my perspective, the, the temple, we, we think of this place to go do baptisms for the dead, or the temple is the place to go do an endowment, or the temple is a place to go whatever, quietly reflect, go put somebody's name in the temple to pray for somebody, to go receive revelation. And all of those are great, wonderful reasons to visit the temple. But the Lord's saying here that, that this is his house, and the purpose of it was so that he could visit him, visit people, manifest himself to his people. The people are coming ultimately to visit him. And and I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there for, for, for most people with the temple. And, and maybe if we could just shift paradigms a little bit and think about that, what am I doing to go to the temple? Uh, maybe some of these other things that I thought was the core reason is, is secondary to Today, I just want to visit the Lord. I'm going to his house to go hang out with the Lord. Can I ask a question? Please do. Not to throw you on the spot. Huh. Oh, dear. What? So then why why does it say on the outside of the temple, um, house of the Lord, holiness to the Lord? Like, why say both of those things? Like, it makes sense that it would say house of the Lord. Um, why, why the holiness do you have, Do you have Lord? some insight maybe on why it would say also holiness of the Lord and where those are written on the temple. Does that have any significance either? You know, the, the house of the Lord's obviously significant in saying this is his house. This is where he's going to manifest himself. And well, we'll see isn't it, it written it's... like, um, I mean, is it on like the East side of the temple or something every time or is it, or does, or is it just at random? You know, that's a good question. I'm just thinking of this as you're bringing it up because it's like, I bet you there's probably some sort of significance where these things are even written physically. And uh, oftentimes, I'm not going to say every time, but oftentimes the temple faces the east. And, and this idea that when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they, they were cast out so that to go back east uh, east out of the garden so that to travel back in, they would enter from the east and travel westward. And so this idea, I mean, you kind of have a dual symbolism that on, on one hand, Christ is supposed to come as the rising sun from the east. But on the other hand, if, if the temple is to return us to a paradise once lost, and if we came out of paradise traveling from the west towards the east, then our return, our restoration, and really that's what the temple is about is this restoration, is going to be traveling back in a westward direction to where we came from, back back into the, the presence of God from where we were ejected. But not every temple faces that direction. It is, sometimes it just depends on the landscape, the lay of the land, and which way it can face. Uh, Timpanogos being a good example, right? Timpanogos Temple, uh, you you enter in on the western the west side. side. Yep. Uh, the Salt Lake Temple faces has an eastern side, but now you come in from the north one. And now I'm not even sure which direction you're going to come from because <laughs> they've got that all stilted up, right? Yeah. So uh, there is some symbolism, but it's not it's not always followed. Do you know where on the temple though that those things are written? It, usually, it's written right there by that the, the main entrance, the door, right above the door. So I, I want to say on the Timpanogos Temple, it's actually written on the... Oh, shoot, now I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to be corrected. I, I want to say it's on the, the eastern side, but now now I'm... It might be the western... Or, excuse me, the... I don't know. I don't know if it's always the same side or not. Interesting. I, I it, 
maybe keep going. I might look into this a little bit. I'm just wondering where, why the difference between house of the Lord and holiness to the Lord would be on there. Yeah, and house, I think, for, for visiting him, but this idea of holiness and, and holiness coming through separation, and, and that's something that we've talked about a little bit uh, before when we talked about, you know, you have a courtyard for this and a courtyard for that, and this idea that as you came closer and closer and closer, it became more holy because it, it was more exclusionary. The The holy of holies, only the high priest could go in there on the Day of Atonement once a year. That That's that's it. So it's very exclusive. And this idea that we're, we're going to be cutting a lot of this out in this journey inwards towards the center and and it becomes more and more holy because you're also I, I don't know I don't necessarily want to say impurities, but there is there is a way of visualizing that 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 gradation that stepping into by layering it, and and I I almost want to make the connection with this and ritual purity uh, because ritual purity in the in the Bible. The idea that you can't be in the same room as a corpse or, or else you're unpure, you're unclean. The, the idea that you can't um, issue of blood it makes you unclean or d- different things that happen, what you eat, what you do could make you ritually unclean isn't to say that it made you physically unclean, isn't to say that it made you spiritually unclean, but there was a symbolism about that, 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 that here are some lines, some guidelines that we're stating, and, and as you travel through those, it, it, you, you can go through this path of cleanliness. And, and Christ, going up to the atonement, right, Lazarus, this man that he cared so much for, uh, was dead in, in the tomb, and he traveled there three days later, and and why is this man that he loves so much? Because you know the, the maybe one of the shortest verses of all scriptures, and Jesus wept, was written in connection with the death of Lazarus, this man that he loved. And if he loved him so much, why why didn't he go into the tomb with him? Instead, he calls out with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come forth." And so Lazarus comes out, and then at that point, rather, so here's the man who was always serving everyone else, who was telling people, the least is the one that serves the most. And and when he went and washed the feet of the apostles, and they said, no, we need to wash, and he says, no, let this be, I, I am here to serve you. Yet in this case, this man that he loved, he asked someone else to roll the rock away, to, to make room, and he had Lazarus come out, and when Lazarus came out, he had someone else unwrap the cloth from Lazarus, rather than holding him, rather than touching him, because if he was in the same room with, with the corpse, he would have been ritually unclean. Yeah, if right. he would have touched the cloth, he would have been richly unclean. Right. And so he's preserving this, this ritual purity, which has nothing to do with, with, with how clean he is spiritually or not, but there is some symbolism in it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yet when he goes and gets crucified, he's, he's completely richly dirty because he's, he, he's, he's with the Gentiles. He's being scourged, so he's got issue of blood flowing from him. He's crucified between two sinners. He's, uh, he's spit on by Gentiles. So, so this idea that he was on one extreme super clean, yet on the other extreme defiled, yet 
we know Christ never was defiled. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here is on the temple, when they start separating space out and saying only the priest can come here or only the high priest can come here, it's not to say that high priests and priests are are holier than us or more clean than us as much as these gradations of separation are used to symbolize a ritual sense of, of purity or holiness. But, but we also create that feeling of holiness when we go and get a temple recommend. It's not that we don't want people to come into the temple. We would like everyone to come into the temple. But we want people to, to change some of the decisions that they do in their life and, and make some sacrifices and go without so that they are trying to create holiness, this idea of holiness to the Lord, that the temple is a place where we start to try to create that idea we need to, to preserve and maintain some sense of holiness in this space. Holiness to the Lord. Let's make ourselves ritually clean. Let's, let's maybe, uh, maybe as we're preparing to go to the temple, what can we do to make sure our house is in order and that we have a peaceful feeling when we go there? Uh, what, what can we do to not fight with, with someone and have a good spirit when we get there? You know, and, and obviously the sure. temple recommend questions, right? We avoid drinking or you know, we try to live ourselves in a better sort of way, in a in a, sh- a sign of respect, and to add a sense of holiness in what we're doing. Holiness to the Lord. Yeah, and the way that it's phrased, holiness to the Lord, kind of comes across or sounds to me like an offering. We're we're it's a holiness to the Lord. Like we're we're offering, um, um, our, our giving up of things that would make us unclean, right? Yes. Or something like that. And so maybe maybe the idea of that the this is the house of the Lord and this even the temple itself is an offering to the Lord. It's a, it's a it's a show of sacrifice of tithing funds, right? Or or when we come in enter the temple, holiness to the Lord could be you know, our way of saying, you know, here is here is our attempt at being as good as you know, as good as we can, I guess, or something like that. Just the way that it's phrased, it kind of jumps out to me as as something that we're giving to the Lord or or offering to the Lord or or trying to do for you know. I, I love it because even in uh, in Hebrew, where this is coming from, the two is is just a lamed, and and it's two. But it also means for you. You could interpret it holiness for the Lord just as easy as you could holiness to the Lord. And and you've mentioned this in a previous podcast, the idea that we are sacrificing our free will, our our our, our choice, our ability to choose. We are we are giving that to the Lord as kind of our sacrifice that we are choosing maybe the the better part. And, and I love the dichotomy. That, that we bring up from time to time where, where water can sometimes be representative of destructive forces or life-giving forces, uh, the waters of baptism or waters of chaos. or you know We've gone down this road with several things, but in, in this idea of an offering to the Lord, on one hand, you're offering your best self or you're trying to make yourself holy. On the other hand, you're also sacrificing your worst self. You're, you're trying to cut out some of those parts maybe that you're not very happy with and you're trying to mm. liberate yourself from some of these other things and that's part of your sacrifice. These are what we're burning off of ourselves in, in an attempt to be like pure. That. 
I just read that the Logan Temple only has holiness to the Lord on it and not house of the Lord. Interesting. We do things different up in Logan. <laughs> you know that's where I'm from, right? I, I don't say, know if I, I did. say I'm from Logan, even though now I've lived outside of Logan for, oh my goodness, this year will be, I will have lived outside of Logan for as long as I was living in Logan in my life now. That's freaking me out, man. Uh-oh. Can you're, I still say I'm from Logan? You're losing your Logan heritage. Anybody yeah. from Cache Valley, will you still accept me if I will have now lived <laughs> as long outside of Logan as I did inside of Logan? Will you still accept me? Does anybody in Logan even listen to this podcast? Is anybody in Logan even religious? <laughs> JK, JK, JK. Um, we do things different in Logan. It's just holiness to the Lord in Logan and not house of the Lord. Wasn't the Logan Temple like the third one built or something? Or yeah, it was one? pretty I mean, early it was on. pretty early on, right? It, it, it absolutely was pretty early on. I'm pretty sure it was built before... It was Salt definitely Lake before Temple. the Salt Lake Temple. A lot of temples were. I'm wondering like if it was before, before like the St. George Temple or something. Yeah. I would I, assume it was. I'm sorry, anybody from Logan. I don't know our temple history that well, and I know that I should. I think I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was the third temple built. I'm laying, I'm, I'm putting it out there. Put it out there. And then I'm just going to jump on Google and find out right now. All right, let's keep going. While you're checking on that, hey, if anyone's looking for some. Uh, some fun ideas. I know, I know the young men's program. I, I it feels like it's faltered a little bit, and and I say that because it feels like we we've been hit kind of with the perfect storm. Um, if if you don't mind me going on a small tangent here, no, let's do it. Um, we had scouts, and scouts you always had these activities, and and the church wanted to get away from scouts. Scouts was kind of going in a different direction, I think, in their aims and their goals and what they were doing than than what the church had in mind. And the church has always had a strong young men's program, young women's program, but also the church has a strong international presence. And in spending all this money on scouting, which might only be in certain regions of the world, didn't make so much sense when they, they had all these other people across the world that they needed to kind of embrace, reach out, and, and plan an activity for. So for whatever the reason, we, we, we get rid of the scouting branch or part of the, the this youth activity. But then after that, we we... we change the organization so you don't have a young men's presidency anymore at the ward level. And then you have COVID. It's like this trifecta that, that comes in and, and it just kind of takes all the, the wind out of the cells for these activities for these youth. So one, one thing that I appreciate that my young men's leader did for us as we were growing up is he created a plaque for us that had um, a brass plate right at the top of it. So it was a wooden a wooden plaque and and on the top in the brass it was engraved uh house of the lord holiness to the lord and and then it had two columns on it and he would take us to a different temple every month and and so this it might not be practical for you if you live outside of utah so if you're outside of utah listening to this i apologize now uh, but he would take us to a different temple each each month and we'd go visit you know jordan river logan the manti saint george and it, it, here in utah it's a little easier to do but then he would get a plaque for each temple we visited and, and would put that plaque on there so we could kind of look at that. A, I don't know. It's it kind of fun having these activities that were based around the temple and, and how the temple was, was something that should have been a, a rock or a key in, in our life. And he did, a, he did a really good job of instilling the value 
of of a temple, at least for me as a youth. So if you're looking for ideas to try to revive your your program, even if you can't go visit multiple temples, just getting the youth to the temple as soon as COVID lets up a little bit seems like a good idea. It's great. Also, the St. George Temple was third. Logan was fourth. You were close. I was so close. Where's Manti in that? Fifth, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it was, it was just pretty boom, early boom, on. Boom. I mean, it looks exactly like the Logan Temple, so I, I could only assume that it was right around that same time. All right. All right, let's keep going. Okay. Um, and I love that you brought up this idea of of poverty, of of sacrifice, the, the tithing or whatnot, because this was a huge sacrifice for the saints at this time. And, and the Lord... Uh, or excuse me, Joseph Smith brings this up in the, in his prayer, his dedicatory prayer to the Lord. He says that this temple was built on great tribulation and in our poverty. And and it reminded me of the, the, the second temple when Zerubbabel in the Old Testament, when they came back out of their Babylonian captivity and, and they had to build the temple with the sword in one hand and, and whatever masonry or work with the other hand because they were a constant threat. And, and it's a very similar situation with the saints here. They, they did endure a lot of persecution, but it's almost as if they'd forgot all the persecution when the dedication happened was how glorious it was. But it was done in a lot of um, sacrifice. And, and because of that, it made it even more special or significant. And, and Joseph Smith really brings this point out in the dedicatory prayer and says, God, look at our sacrifice. Look what we did at a time when we really couldn't afford to do it, yet we did it anyways because it's that important to you and because it's that important to us. And because it's that important, please make this a holy place. That does make it more sacred, I think. Like the widow's might, right? When, when you got someone dropping all sorts of money in, but somebody's taking everything they have, and it, it just, almost like how Abraham Lincoln, when he was dedicating uh, Gettysburg and says, you know what, I we come here to try to dedicate it, but it's poor. We can't dedicate it near as well as the sacrifice that went. These young men that died dedicated it far greater than our poor power to add or take away anything from this event. So the dedicatory prayer is wonderful, but almost what maybe gets missed is the sacrifice and the effort that really was what I think made it so the Spirit could be there and and give that, that dedicatory power. Okay, next it says um, something that's kind of interesting, uh, and maybe I'll hit you guys up out there listening in uh, wherever you are listening to the podcast. It says that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the Most High. What What is that supposed to mean? All your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the Most High. I, I, I didn't. I didn't prepare you for this at all, Nate. Do you want to take a stab at it, or do you have no. any guesses? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Um. So salutations, right? Salutations are greetings. Uh, but they say that your salutations may be in the name of the Lord. So what kind of greeting do we greet in the name of the Lord? And when I was first reading this years back, I'd look at it and I would think. The salutations, like, are you saying hi to the temple workers? Are you saying hi to the other people that are coming and going? But again, 
This is the house of the Lord. You are coming there specifically to say hi to the Lord. So your salutations are you're coming and greeting God. When you come and greet God, it may be done in the name of the Lord. So when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. But then there's something else here with uplifted hands. And and this idea that praying with your hands lifted, it's not something common. Usually we pray, we pray with our hands folded. But when we pray in the temple, it's different. And, and it's not just different in the temple, but there are times in the scriptures where you read about these prayers with uplifted hands. If, if you're looking for an image to depict this, you go into the Pearl of Great Price and you see Abraham on the altar and, and he's got both of his hands lifted up over his face. And, and you could say, well, he's probably trying to defend himself from a guy that's about to drive a knife through him. <laughs> yeah, it definitely <laughs> looks like that. But... But I think in, in this case, he's not pushing his hands out. His, house, his hands aren't facing outward. His hands are facing inward, and they're uplifted in a form of prayer. And, and another great example of this is Moses, when Israel's going out to fight the enemy, and he puts his hands up in the air. And as long as his hands are in the air, Israel's winning the war. And as soon as his hands start to droop or fall, then they start to lose the battle. So then he gets Caleb and Joshua to brace his hands up and, and, and hold his hands up in the air so that Israel can prevail. And this idea that you will win if you never stop praying, that, that you continually pray, and, and so there's something significant about that. And, and here the salutations aren't just, you know, you're not doing the hell Hitler with the temple workers as you're walking in or out. This is specifically referring to your greeting to the Lord as you're visiting him in his house, how you should, how you should be greeting him. So I, I thought it was kind of an interesting detail that, that he includes here in, uh, in the dedicatory prayer. Yeah, I wouldn't have even known where to go with that. <laughs> Hopefully I went somewhere good with that. Um, next, as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek ye learning even by study and also by faith. This is quoting from uh, the earlier revelation that God gave them, the importance of learning and getting educated. And he says, just that preface, as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another. And, and the idea of teaching being coupled with faith is, is something interesting for me. When you look at the lectures on faith, it says that you cannot believe in something you haven't heard of. And, and you read that in the New Testament. Faith comes by hearing mm-hmm. and hearing by the word of God. Yeah. You can't have faith in a God you've never heard of. Yes. And that's why Adam walked in the presence of God, so he was a special witness for God. And then and then you have these dispensations where men would fall away, yet he would call a prophet and visit the prophet so that you could have faith again because you've, you now have somebody who's seen God act as that witness and teaches them about what he sees so that now you can have faith. So knowledge is an important precursor to faith. 
And oftentimes we look at it as faith is an important precursor to knowledge, but you can't believe something you haven't heard. You've got to first hear about it before you can even have faith in it. So, so I like how they, they, they phrase that, that, as all have not faith, seek ye diligently to teach one another. And, and also, I, you learn a lot of things by faith. And, and he says, teach one another words of wisdom, seek out of the best books, and learn by study and also by faith. And you have this almost juxtaposition here where study might represent one thing, where faith represents another thing. And at times, they seem like they're at odds with each other. The idea of almost the science-religion conflict. And God's saying it's not all about one or the other. You should be seeking from both. And and it's not that they're at odds. Maybe they're two different perspectives, but they don't always have to conflict with each other. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that, Nate? I think that I think that a lot of the the conflict is just I mean, as simple as it sounds, it's because it's a lack a lack of perspective or a lack of big picture understanding, right? Absolutely. We have such finite understanding of the universe, right? And we, as we get older and older, I feel like it's the constant learning of everything you don't know, right? Like, mm-hmm. Or the realization, not the learning, of the realization of the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't have any clue, right? And it is interesting that so many times things that places where you could look and say that faith and science conflict with each other, if you take maybe two steps back perspective-wise and see the bigger picture, you go, oh my goodness, like... I was I was looking at both of these things with a finite misunderstanding. And so I I'm just I'm basically I'm echoing what you're saying and just reminding myself and it might be good for us all to just always remember like it's it's hard for us not to see we we want to be able to connect all the dots, right? As human beings, especially as like um hopefully um serious thinking or deep thinking human beings i think there's a desire to want to put all of the pieces together and that's where you have a lot of conspiracy theorists that's kind of the world that they live in right or or you know the schizophrenic they they kind of live in the same space right and by that it's you know the government's out to get you. Well, of course, of course they are. The government's not out to get you. Well, of course you would say that. You know, it's like there's an answer for everything, right? A lot of times you you find what you're looking for. Well, that's that's the point is that you you find ways to connect every loose end to prove what you want to believe. And at a certain point, if you don't have the evidence to prove it, you use that as evidence that like, well, isn't it convenient that I don't have the evidence for that? You know what I mean? It's like, uh-huh. it's like there's always an answer, right? And so the conspiracy theorist can always connect these small little 
intellectual um, feedback loops, right? These small circles where that's just the, the scope of the universe and the magnitude of the things that we don't know is so extreme that the idea that we would ever be able to, to have answers for every single little thing is such a weird, arrogant, like, fantasy. And so the, the complexity of, of the idea of God and the complexity of the sciences that it feels like we're always learning something new or we're always discovering something that we were sure wasn't that way or whatever it is, right? Is that the more and more you have some perspective, you almost become at peace with the idea that I will never have all of the answers. I will never be able to connect all of the dots. I will never in this life be able to explain every little detail of faith, every explanation of something that may seem really confusing or problematic or whatever with God or religion, just like I'll never be able to explain every detail of like the science behind how this universe was created or where it's going or what lives at the bottom of the, you know, various trenches in the ocean. You see what I mean? It's like, I can't, I've had to come to peace with the idea that like, if I'm chasing a way to tie up every single loose end so that I can have it make sense to me in my mind, I'm just going to be frustrated. And I, there's no place for faith in that. And there's no place for actual understanding. And so it's the long way of saying when there is, I feel like, those conflicts of faith and science, the, sometimes, at least for me, the best remedy is to go, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and be at peace with that, that hopefully someday I will. I'm, it's not that I'm going to be lazy and not try to know, but I am going to accept humbly my brain doesn't have the bandwidth or capacity to know everything on like the biggest of big pictures. So therefore, I'm going to just do my best and be okay with not knowing everything yeah, and not and it, having an answer to everything. And it, and it's not that you're giving up, right? I mean, you you still want to know. You'd still love. I to have know. such a des. I love learning about things. I love I love filling in details. And but the thing is, I think that the rewarding part of how I'm approaching this, at least as of late, is is that when I don't feel like I have to force something to believe something, or I don't have to have every detail that when I am giving given some of those missing pieces, it's truly like anchor moments for me, right? Mm -hmm. It's truly like actual faith solidifying things where you're like, okay, the fact that I didn't get that right away and I had to exercise a little bit of belief when it didn't make a lot of logical sense, when when some of those missing details are then revealed or given or learned or discovered 
it's it's so much more fulfilling and anchoring for me. And then I have to say, there's a reason why you, you hear it so many times in the scriptures, asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened. Uh, did you think to ask God? And, and this idea that we should be seeking this knowledge, and, and yeah, like you say, we might not have a complete picture. We might not understand things, and it's okay to not be sure about how this works or not understand how this is. We kind of shelf that idea, still anxious to know. But in the journey for learning, in the journey for seeking God, we have those moments where God reveals a little bit of truth. We have those moments where God shows us something and something maybe that we had sitting on the shelf for a while all of a sudden makes sense in a light that we couldn't understand before. And we've had these experiences or now we know things that, that this makes sense. And we're like, oh, okay. And, and those moments really do, I, how'd you call them? Like anchor moments, right? These these revelations that you can kind of dip back into and say, I know God lives because he talked to me here. He talked to me there. And this is a moment that I shared with him. It's it's like this invitation to come and know God, studying not just by faith, but by study. And it's important that we clarify faith. Faith has to be put in something reliable, you know, you can have faith in all sorts of things. If, if you have faith that I can stand on this cup and it's not going to crush underneath my weight, well, that's that's misplaced faith. That's not that's not faith, right? And, and sometimes I think people get carried away and put a little bit of f- too much faith in some things that are common thought in the gospel or some some things that we do in tradition or some things that, that have become a part of the church but aren't really a core part of that gospel or the, the idea that Christ came and died for us. And, and that's where we should have our faith and that's where it should be anchored. And, and, and the others we learn are these moments to come and know God. And that's what the temple's all about is coming and knowing God and, and having him revealed to us through these experiences. Word up. Um, yeah, and and uh, let's see. One other thought. So after he, he quotes that there, he follows it up in a prayer by saying, And do thou grant, Holy Father, that all those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books, that they may seek learning even by study and also by faith, as thou hast said. And, and how is it possible for us to learn from the best books if those best books haven't been written? And I think a lot of books have been. God's poured his knowledge upon the world, not just the Latter-day Saints, but upon the world. I don't think it's a coincidence that Gregor Mendel in the early 1800s, at the same time as Joseph Smith, is becoming the father of modern genetics. I don't think it's coincidence that Charles Darwin voyaging across the HMS Beagle is making these discoveries about the Earth's history in the past, that we have these new fields, that science is making these leaps and bounds, that vaccines become a thing, that all of this invention and innovation and theories all over the world God is pouring out his knowledge. We should seek wisdom from the best books. But I also think that some of the best books need to be written by those that are seeking the wisdom. How are we supposed to get that wisdom? How are we supposed to get that fulfillment if we're not talking about it, if we're not sharing those thoughts, if we're not enlightening each other? Get out there and and contribute to the discussion, contribute to the dialogue, find a way to help 
build faith in the world today because we know we need it. We live in a time when there's so much flooding the world and, and, and a lot of despair, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, a, a lot of garbage. We could use some of those best books. So I, for what it's worth, it's, I think, uh, I think some of the temple goers, you know, if you're, if you're out there seeking knowledge, you should also be looking to, to see how you can contribute back to, um, okay. Moving down, let's see in, uh, verses, let's see, 24 to 28, we ask thee, Holy Father to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this, thy house to all generations and for eternity, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself, and that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people, upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. Now, it says this a couple places, this idea that you're you're going and receiving a name, you're receiving the Lord's name on you. And, and and this idea of receiving this name and having the name the Lord's name written on you for worshiping in the temple goes back to the book of Revelation and this idea that uh, if you have the name of the Lord on you the the preservation the blessings there so there there are some attachments there uh, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dive too much into that though uh, but there's also a lot of almost some pent up frustration like. No combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people. This is your people. You put your name on it. This is yours. Own them. And how do you own them? You take care of them. If you own something, you almost think of like uh, a Toy Story. And he writes uh, Andy on their foot, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if God's gonna put His name on us, He's not He's not gonna leave us out in the yard to get rained on and not take care of. Like this idea of ownership and taking care of us. And and he drives this through. And if any people shall rise against this people, that thine anger be kindled against them. And if they shall smite this people, thou wilt smite them. Thou wilt fight for thy people as thou didst in the day of battle, that we may be delivered from the hands of all their enemies. Or that they may be delivered from the hands of all their enemies. And then he says it even more specifically. We ask thee, Holy Father, to remember those who have been driven by the inhabitants of Jackson County, Missouri. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so specifically, these guys from the lands of their inheritance and break off, O Lord, this yoke of affliction that has been put upon them. O Lord, we delight not in the destruction of our fellow men. Their souls are precious before thee. Have mercy, O Lord, upon the wicked mob. I see, that's an interesting. Have mercy on the mob who have driven thy people that they may cease um uh, let's see cease to to spoil I can't read I can't even read what I wrote here mm-hmm. uh, that they may repent of their sins if repentance is to be found so he says if they repent have mercy we know that these souls are precious but if not don't forget what they did to us especially those guys in Jackson County Missouri <laughs> let's got to get them that's an interesting thing to put in a dedicatory prayer to the first temple <laughs> And the dispensation. You're making me laugh. It's killing my ribs. Sorry. No, it's great. Keep going. Those punks in Jackson Those County, punks Missouri. In Jackson County. And if they repent, you know, I get it. All That's right. fine. If they repent, Spare okay. But, but if not, but they please, probably won't be, so let's don't, just don't forget them. And and I think that this is a this is a 
a big part of, of American history and church history I think people miss out on is, you know, we had Zion's camp, but it almost looked like a failure. Nothing happened. They didn't redeem Zion. And, and he couldn't get he couldn't get his 500 saints to go out and do it. The state militia failed and didn't do it. But it's not for lack of trying. Joseph Smith and the righteous there are doing everything they can. And the Lord has said, if you do everything in your power, then you can stand still with the utmost assurance to see the arm of the Lord revealed. And Joseph Smith is saying, you said it, now follow through. Yeah. And follow through is an important thing as a parent. It's true. If you tell We've your kids, about this. yeah, you don't you don't make promises that you're not willing to keep. You don't make threats that you're not willing to keep. Yes, I, I know them, what you mean with promises, and I agree with you. But also, you don't make threats that you're not willing to follow through with. Yeah, if you say I'm going to throw that away if you don't do it, that's right. Then you better you better throw it away. And and it's funny because as a parent, I think that we when our kids are young, we. And I'm not going to derail this because I want to keep moving through this, but it is funny because I had to learn this the hard way with my little kids because there's a lot of things you try to say as a threat to get them to do something. And then they get old enough to look you dead in the eye and go, okay, then do it. Yeah, they try and to call like, you. Gosh, dang it, you man. You better not be bluffing because when dang they call it. your bluff, it's Okay, a I was sad bluffing. <laughs> and then the thing is, is it just takes away any future, like, you know. They don't take you serious. Nope. You lose all credibility. That's right. If you're not going to follow through, then they don't take you serious. You, 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 yeah. And God is the ultimate parent. So is he going to follow through with Jackson County, Missouri? And he absolutely does. And that's what I think we miss in this history lesson that with, with the, the, the infamous order number 11. And, and I don't, I don't, if I were to pull, our, our, our audience, whoever's listening out there, how many of you have ever heard of order number 11 or even know what I'm talking about before we even dive into this? And, and yet, this is God following through on what he said he would do. This is an answer to prayer, and this is very much tied to the, the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. So Joseph Smith warned Donovan, um, said, that God's wrath hangs over Jackson County and you will live to see the day when it will be visited by fire and sword. The fields and farms and houses will be destroyed and only the chimneys will be left to mark the desolation. Wow. Speaking of Jackson County, and, and when the Civil War broke out, the, the problem is Missouri had a lot of, and this is, this is what, ended up driving the saints out is, is Missouri had a lot of slaveholders and a lot of non-slaveholders and to have the saints moving in a large populations and, and they, they were for the majority non-slave owners, the idea was going to push the state yes. to be a free state versus a slave state. And this upset a lot of people. And so as they're pushing for slavery and you have this non-slavery. So for political reasons, they get the, they get the shove and it, 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 the state actually becomes a union state in in the in the Civil War, a free state. Yet you have such a high slave uh, population, if you will, a slave wanting population, that the Civil War fighting this has become this this becomes the fiercest, most bloodiest, destructive battles on on the west side of the Mississippi River through the Civil War, and and the Confederates burn two cities to the ground. And in consequence to the actions, the governor of Illinois declares 
order number 11, which mandates, uh, here, here, here's what it says. All persons living in Jackson County, all persons living in Jackson and the surrounding counties, Jackson, Cass, and Bates counties, Missouri, and in that part of Vernon County, all in the military district are hereby ordered to remove from their present places of residence within 15 days from the date hereof. So just as the saints had been ordered by by the mobs and given a, a, you have to be out by this day, and the state said, yeah, you're right, your cause is just, but you know what? We can't help you because we don't want a civil war. Now all of a sudden that same state is issuing an ultimatum and telling their people, you have to be out by this day. Uh, order number 11, dated August 25th, 1863, was signed by, by Governor Ewing. And then it says, there were some exceptions for people living within a mile of designated union strongholds, but for tens of thousands of others, there was no choice. Ewing sent soldiers to enforce the order, and they did so, according to one historian, with savage efficiency, joined by Jayhawkers. Some historians have concluded that hundreds of men were shot as the Union cleaned out the western border of Missouri. Homes and farms were burned to keep the families from returning. So you said the governor of... um Illinois, but not not. Uh, I'm sorry, not Illinois, Missouri. You meant Missouri. Okay, I'm just making sure. Yeah, thank I'm you. Like, I'm like, why would the governor of Illinois have anything to do with this? But okay, I going. don't know where Illinois came from. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, Missouri. Nauvoo, Missouri. dude, is where it came from, right? I guess so. All right, let's keep, keep me going. straight. No, I'm I'm just making sure, just in case somebody's listening to the radio, like looking around. Yeah, please do keep me straight on this. All right, let's keep going. So, they 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 shot the men. They burned their houses to keep them from coming home, from coming back. They piled all of the bedding, barrels of molasses, sugar, all clothing and provisions in the yard and started a fire which destroyed everything, including the house and mill, one victim wrote. They left taking all the horses and cattle with them, leaving a pair of old oxen and a surrey they thought useless. The Exodus burned a groove in the memory of young Francis Twyman, one of the refugees who even 50 years later could recall the events as if they just happened. The road from Independence to Lexington was crowded with women and children, women walking with their babies in their arms, packs on their backs, and four or five children following after them, some crying for bread, some crying to be taken back to their homes. But there were no homes left. That's terrible. And, 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 God follows through with his threats, man. <laughs> he follows through with his threats. One Union squad boasted of burning 110 homes. Many other soldiers had similar stories. Um, fire spread to the prairies and the woods. Uh, one historian writes, the air grew hazy with smoke. Uh, the bleak terrain would be referred to for decades as the Burnt District. One woman had two cows hitched to a wagon. Inside the wagon was a very sick child. The wagon halted. The woman got out with a sick babe in her arms and seated herself under the friendly shade of a tree. It was apparent that the child was dying. There sat the mother with her child dying in her lap. Her husband had been killed. Oh, the anguish of the brokenhearted mother as she sat there with tears streaming down her pale cheeks, knowing she was powerless to save her child. And the crowd surged on, she wrote. And, and two years after the destruction, George Miller, a minister, returned to the area. 
And, and this is what he said. He wrote, quote, For miles and miles, we saw nothing but lone chimneys. It seemed like a vast cemetery, not a living thing to break the silence. Man no longer existed here. <laughs> you go back to what Joseph Smith said to Donovan. God's wrath hangs over Jackson County, and you will live to see the day when it will be visited by fire and sword. The fields and farms and houses will be destroyed, and only the chimneys will be left to mark the desolation. So, I I don't know. I, I don't know how, how many people realize that the follow-through, it was there. This story ended with with. Yeah, I not good, I guess. No, I mean it's it's terrible and it's sad and and like I mean and people kind of get their comeuppance at some point, you know. Yeah, and and speaking of this event, I almost wanted to to talk about it in a sense of it's not that God I mean, we talk about we talk about God doing this, God sending this, but it's not that God went through and burned all of these buildings down. It's it's not that God went and, and destroyed the houses, stole all the fields, the crops, and the animals, the livestock, and and forced everyone out of their homes. You know, people did that, but but God knew what was going to happen. That and and you have to wonder, you know. Is the reason why independence was the gathering place is because God knew what was going to happen in that area in the Civil War. You know, I, I here I want you to gather here. I know what's going to happen to you, and and in the consequence of what happens to you, it's going to turn around to my glory because it's going to it's going to happen to them, and it'll show that I do know that I that I am mindful that I do follow up on my words and that I do fulfill every promise, every jot and tittle of what I said. And as we talk about God fulfilling and God coming through, you know, I, I, I can't help but you sent me an article earlier this week, and it was something that, that I saw in the news as well. They, they, um, they'd been studying this, this Near Eastern city for 15 years trying to figure out what in the world happened because they had five feet of a, of a burn zone where, where this, this clay is just all black and, 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 and burned. And, and they're trying to figure out what in the world happened here because the pottery was melting, the, the, the metal was melting, and you don't get that in a normal fire. You, you don't get it when war comes through and they burn the city. You don't get it in a volcano eruption. It was a fire that was much hotter than that. So it took 15 years of gathering evidence from this, from this archaeological site, this tell uh, out by Jordan, uh, from what happened uh, several thousand years ago, going back into Old Testament times, and and the they pieced it together. It was fascinating. This asteroid they said came in, entered the atmosphere, and exploded about two and a half miles above the city. And because it exploded two and a half miles above the city, uh, the 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 blast from it they say was was a thousand times more powerful than than the nuclear bomb at Hiroshima. Oh man, a thousand times more powerful, and the temperature quickly got so hot from the explosion of this asteroid in the atmosphere two miles above the city 
that it lit the entire city on fire instantaneously, just burned everything. And and then a couple seconds later, that blast wave came and hit the city and just decimated it, destroyed it. They said all 8,000 people died, and not just all 8,000 people, but all of the animals, everything in that city, nothing survived the destruction. They kind of described this. This is potentially what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, this, this big blast hitting the city. And then the crazy thing is, the, the concussion, the wave, the blast wave traveling out miles away, about 14 miles away from the city that it wiped off the face of the earth, hit the walls at the city Jericho, and the wind from the wave knocked the walls over, which, which is just like the story we hear where they're sitting there surrounding the city, blowing their trumpets, and they don't do a thing. They don't do a single thing, but all of a sudden a wave comes, knocks the walls over, and then burns the city down with, with no human intervention. And, and going back to what you were saying earlier as, as we were talking about um, as we were talking about things that we don't understand or perspective, you know, we read some of these biblical stories and say, yeah, no, that could never have happened. But now we look at the science and say, actually, scientifically, what they're describing it seems very accurate to what we would expect. Seems very, very much on point with with what would happen in an event like this. It just took us a long time to gather the evidence and be able to piece the whole story together. And it's incredible. Yeah, and, and God follows through, and 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 it made me think. You know, when Abraham's saying, and and because going back to that per adventure, what if I find one righteous man here yeah. in the city? God knows what's going to happen. If you've got an asteroid on a collision course yeah. with Earth and it's about to burst above the city. He's like, okay, you do have one guy. Get him out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny. Yeah, you're right. You got one guy. And, and technically God's like, if, I, if, you, if there's one righteous man in the city, sure, I'll spare it. And then what does he do? He takes the one man out of the yeah, city. Yeah, he's like, get out. <laughs> no, Everybody's no. out of the pool. Everybody out of the pool. Yeah, once he pulls the righteous one out and, and and it's gone, and you look at it, how could God do something like that? It's not so much that God is doing these things. It's not so much that God made these people violent. It's not so much that God sent the asteroid to go do it. As much as God wants to protect us, to help us, and and warn us. And, and we talked about this in previous lessons, to go and warn the people. Let them know what's going to happen and get them out or get them where they need to be. Get them to listen so that this doesn't happen. And, and you see the story of Lot's wife and you see, man, that's, that's unfair. He turns around and it turns into a pillar of salt. But, but you look at that and it says that, that as she looked, it's not just looked, but the, the, the Hebrew there is saying that she looked with intent, with care, like she 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 dwelt it on it a little bit, and it says from behind him. So at this point, it's not that she was with him and turned around real quick to take a peek. It's almost this idea that she stayed behind him because, well, part of this was her her they had sons and and they had daughters, and their daughters were married, and and not only were they married, I, I believe. I mean, she had family aside from the daughters that were going with them that stayed back in the city that died. And and as she looks at the city, it's almost as if she's telling Lot here, I'll catch up with you. 
I just I just need to take one more look. I just need to I, I just need to say goodbye to to these people I care about or the city that I know, this life that I know. Go on without me. I'll catch up to you. And then I'll, if something like this were to happen where you have this asteroid just burst out and vaporize, it's, it's not that God vaporized her for turning around. It's that she, she didn't listen and get out of the way, and, and, and here you have this. And yet it still testifies that God is a man of his word. Every jot, every tittle, everything he says is fulfilled. And I guess that's my big takeaway from this is God says it. It's going to happen. He doesn't, he doesn't just say things and not let them happen. Killer. It's kind of a long... No, no, I mean, that's that's oh. some great insight. A long way to get that. around saying that. And I think it is neat. The temple in 109, it focuses a lot on this message of redemption, but that's what a temple is about. And it may be not just redemption from Jackson County or redemption from, from people that are oppressing you. Maybe redemption from our own, um, our own iniquity. Iniquity is not quite the word I'm looking for. Uh, addictions or sin or whatever the case may be. If we're struggling financially and we're in bondage, we're in debt, and and we feel that we need to be saved. I mean, is, is that the story of God and His people pulling them out of Egypt, pulling them out of slavery, delivering them from Jackson County, delivering them for wherever they may be. The point of the thing is the temple is is this 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 place for freedom that God can deliver us from our our sins that seem to be holding us in bondage. He can deliver us from our financial bondage or deliver us from whatever kind of afflictions and trials that that's a place of refuge that we can go and feel that deliverance i i think that's an integral part of the temple awesome okay moving moving on let's wrap it up oh boy okay we're right there we're right there all right i'm gonna wrap this up real quick then two last points first uh just reading from 60. Uh, now these words, O, God, o Lord, we have spoken before thee concerning the revelation and commandments which thou hast given unto us, which are identified with the Gentiles. So everything we've said so far is regarding the Gentiles. But thou knowest that thou hast a great love for the children of Jacob, who have, uh, who have been scattered upon the mountains for a long time in a cloudy and dark day. We therefore ask thee to have mercy upon the children of Jacob, that Jerusalem from this hour may begin to be redeemed, that the yoke of bondage may return to be broken off from the house of David, and that the children of Judah may begin to return to the lands which thou didst give to Abraham their father. And from this point forward, the population of Jews at Jerusalem never dropped. It just builds and builds and builds. And Jerusalem, as we know, uh, Israel becomes a, a city-state with, with the help of Britain and the United States. The, the history there, we won't go into details. But in the beginning of the 1800s, there were only 2 million Jews in the world. Uh, at this time, 1836, so we go fast forward, 1880, there are 7.3 million Jews. This is the most prosperous time that the Jews have ever had, is at the time right here with the dedication of the temple and the prayer that Joseph Smith is offering, bring these people back. And and even down to today, we have not seen the kind of growth in their population that they saw from 1800 to 1880. It's just, it's just marvelous to see that fulfillment and great to see that all pull together. Last thought, though, as we're talking about this, 110, and, and this is one week after the dedicatory prayer, 
they gathered at the temple to have the sacrament. They passed the sacrament, and then Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, go to the other room, close the curtain to offer a prayer to the Lord, and the Lord visits them, standing there in the temple and accepts the temple. And then you have Elijah and Moses and this idea of the returning of keys. What makes this so significant is that this happens on Passover, Passover Sunday. And, and speaking of Jews and being restored, however, two million, three million Jews in the world, the, the religious Jews on this occasion have set an empty plate at their house as part of Passover for Elijah to come and visit them. And he did come, but not to Israel. Instead, he went to, to Joseph Smith, to the Kirtland Temple, to the outsiders. And here's the thing. In in the Old Testament, it says, it, well, in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament stories, there says there were a lot of hungry widows in Jerusalem, but to none of them did he appear, but unto the, to the, the, the Gentile woman. And the story where he went to her and he blessed her that her meal would never fail. And so here's the thing. All of the Jews, all of the world is in this time of apostasy or famine where there is no word of God. They, they don't have a prophet. They don't have guidance. They are in this famine. But to all of them who are sitting there with the plate set for him to come and eat with them, to share a meal in this time of famine, to bring this light back to the earth, instead of going to the house of Israel, he goes to the Gentiles. He goes to Joseph Smith, and he brings the keys back to the widow, the the outs, the, the Gentile woman, the the and 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 shares the meal with her. And not only that, but he promises that the the meal will never fail, that she will always have food. And and that's the promise that with the gospel restored, the gospel shall never again be taken from the earth. The meal will never fail. We will always have a prophet and revelation to guide us to the end of time through this dispensation, as was the story with Elijah in the Old Testament. It's amazing. I love it. So that's cool. that's it. That's that's great. all I got. No, some great stuff tonight. Really great stuff tonight. Good work. Um, what are we talking about next week? Next week we are talking about Doctrine and Covenants one eleven through one fourteen, and the subtitle there says, "I will order all things for your good." Right on. Well, until next week, then. See ya.